Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning into the Sheila Zelensky Show. Make sure that you are following me on social media. Up on your screen, you can see it there, but for those listening to the podcast, you can find me on Instagram, Sheila Zelensky, all one word on Instagram. On Twitter, it's at Real Sheila Z. Facebook, Real Sheila Z. If you are not already one of my patrons on Patreon, please do support me over there. And for those of you that have the means, please do become a premium partner. This show is 100% listener supported. It's ad free listening, no sponsors, no advertisements. There's also other ways to support this ministry, including you can send check or money order to box 396 Woodland Hills, California 91365. And you've asked for some ways to donate that are simpler, like Cash App, Venmo, Zelle, and there's PayPal and GoFundMe options. All that information is there. SheilaZolinsky.com slash donate. And we've made a lot of convenient ways for you to donate. So check those out. Folks, I'm so excited to have on my guest today. It is none other than Bob Hamer. And you may have heard this name. I've been a long time fan of him. Years ago, I read his book, The Last Undercover, the true story of an FBI agent's dangerous dance with evil. He was able to infiltrate one of what I believe is one of the most evil organizations, period. And you guys know for over a decade, I've talked about these evil, sinister organizations like NAMBLA, the North American Man-Boy Love Association. Yeah, I just said it. It's a pedophile organization in the United States. Well, guess what? This FBI undercover agent managed to infiltrate this evil organization. This totally has all the elements of a thriller crime movie when a federal agent gains a trust of a sinister, dark, insidious organization. And we're going to talk about that today. Of course, you know, I've had Craig Sawman Sawyer on my show lots. We've discussed vets for child rescue. We've talked about human trafficking, pedophilia. Bob is one of Craig's board of advisors over there at Vets for Child Rescue. Bob spent almost 30 years in the FBI as a special agent. And think about this, many of those years were undercover. But again, his successful infiltration of NABLA, I want to get into that. He's had numerous awards throughout his career, including the FBI Director's Award for Distinguished Service. He was a judge advocate, a Marine Corps vet, an award-winning author. I could go on and on, but without further ado, it is the one and only Mr. Bob Hamer. Bob, welcome to the program. It is such a pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you, Sheila. I appreciate you having me. Well, listen, I mean, there's so much to get into with all this. First of all, tell the listeners a little bit about your background and sort of how you got into undercover work. Lead us up to how that trajectory happened. Okay, well, I'm certainly older than most of your listeners, so maybe some of this is going to sound a little dated, but uh, I grew up kind of in that Perry Mason generation where I assumed that every defendant was innocent and that at some point the bad guy comes running through the back door of the courtroom saying, I did it, I did it. (laughs) I had been a judge advocate. I was, as you mentioned, I was in the Marine Corps for four years as a judge advocate. The one thing I realized in the Marine Corps was that there really was nobody innocent. Uh, It always came down to whether there was sufficient evidence 
to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. And no case was a whodunit. Every case was always was the confession legal, was the search admissible, those type of legal administrative issues that had nothing to do with the facts of the case. I was looking for something more exciting and was hoping to get into either the CIA or the FBI, and the FBI turned out to be a perfect fit for me. So my four years of active duty on the Marine Corps really prepared me for the FBI because I had so much courtroom experience. I worked everything from unauthorized absence to murder, so I, I definitely knew the rules of evidence. But even once I got in the FBI, I was looking for something more exciting than just the traditional investigative work. And I, I kind of, people ask me, where did I get my undercover training? Quite frankly, it was from watching Rockford Files. I just, I liked that Jim Rockford character on TV where he was always in trouble and was lying to get out of it and fooling people about who he was. And I just thought that undercover work would be the exciting way to go. And that's what I gravitated toward in the FBI. Wow. Well, who doesn't love uh, James Garner as Jim Rockford? <laughs> I still watch reruns. <laughs> yeah, so do I. So picture this, folks. Here's a guy who's going undercover as an international arms dealer, a drug dealer, a mafioso. Uh, you worked the LA Mafia family case. 15 mob guys or something you guys took down those. You took down members of the Mexican Mafia. I mean, street gangs in LA. You're no stranger, obviously, Bob, to these nefarious groups. But I mean, these must pale in comparison to such a, a twisted organization like NAMBLA, the inner workings of that, I'm sure. Well, it was interesting. I I didn't take on the NAMBLA investigation until much later in my career. And I'm not sure, looking back on it, I could have been successful in that investigation had I not had the previous experiences. Now, granted, there was virtually nothing similar to what I did in the NAMBLA investigation than what I did prior to that, as you mentioned. I mean, I've successfully posed as an international arms dealer, as a contract killer, as a drug dealer. I, I worked as a high-roller drug dealer and actually a, a street-level drug dealer. I've been a white-collar criminal. So I, I had a variety of experiences that I was bringing in to the investigation that led us into NAMBLA. But I think had that been my first case, I'm not sure we would have been successful. And had that been my first case, I'm not sure I would have taken on any more investigations. I mean, this organization is the pinnacle of twisted perversion. What's the mental and emotional preparation going on into that? Like, this is a monolithic juggernaut. I mean, it's one thing to culturally get prepared for infiltrating a Mexican drug cartel or an Italian mobster or even a gang. There's a culture there. I mean, Bob, how does one get mentally, physically, and especially emotionally prepared for convincing detestable perverts that you're one of them? Well, it is. I mean, the one thing about being successful undercover is that you have to be able to sell your backstory. But a lot of times the role that you play can be pretty specific and it doesn't require that much of of an emotional investment. In, in other words, if I'm posing as a contract killer, the person hiring me really doesn't care whether I'm a Republican or a Democrat, whether I'm a Christian or a Jew, whether I like the opera or football, they just want to believe that I have the capability of killing the person they want killed. If I'm a drug dealer, 
people don't really care the type of music that I enjoy or the books that I read. They just want to know whether I have sufficient amount of money to purchase the drugs. So in many of those undercover assignments, the backstory was important and I had to live that backstory, but the mental preparation wasn't wasn't all that necessary to be successful. If If I posed as a single person, I had to remember not to talk about my wife and kids. So that was kind of what I had to worry about. But in NAMBLA, it was a whole different type of, of mental gymnastics that I had to perform because the men that I was dealing with in that investigation, they thought differently than most of us. They believed differently than most of us, and their interests were a lot different than us. Uh, let me give you two real basic examples. One of the guys that we eventually convicted was, I, I call him the Triple D, the divorce dentist from Dallas. And he videotaped or recorded a Sylvan learning commercial. Now, you and I might do that because our child needs help with its reading or she needs help with her homework. So we would want to find this private tutoring company that could help. No, this guy taped the commercial because he fell in love with the little boy that was on the commercial. Wow. And he watched it over and over again. A movie that they talked about all the time was Lord of the Flies. And it had nothing to do with the quality of the movie, uh, with the acting. It was because it was a bunch of little boys running around in their underwear. So it was important to me. I had to see the world through their eyes if I was going to be successful. So I had to be careful the whole time I was with these guys. I had to be careful that I didn't say something that sort of wasn't the, the traditional Nambla or boy lover mantra. That made it a lot more difficult. So typically in an undercover assignment, I had an informant that was introducing me to the group. That didn't happen in, in every case, but most of the time it did. So I would learn from them. I would observe them. I'd talk to them. They would tell me what was kind of the proper terminology, uh, the proper way to, to behave, just whatever it took to be able to blend into the group that I would be infiltrating. In this particular case, in, in the NAMBLA investigation, I didn't have an informant, and we'll get into the details as how I got to NAMBLA, but I knew that I was going to be dealing with these men that were sexually attracted to boys, so I began doing research on the Internet. And it really wasn't that difficult to find a lot of material. The material I found didn't say, oh, this is how you hold your hands or this is how you hold your umbrella. But what it did tell me was this is the way they thought. This is the way they talked. So I could read the articles that they had written about themselves. I had read what other people had written about the organization and was able to, to learn that way. Before I actually made any face-to-face -face meetings, I had an awful lot of correspondence with NAMBLA members, so I was able to pick up on sort of the, the little nuances as to how they would talk and behave. You know, because again, you have a family, you're a family man, you're a former Sunday school teacher, you love children, and yet you see what these men talk about, they how they think, how they probably vocalize their desires for these little prepubescent young little boys. I mean, it's so twisted. Is that a, that's got to be a rough thing. Well, I, I've jokingly said that God blessed me with a really screwed up brain. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's a, a marriage relationship book out that I, I believe it's titled Women Are Like Spaghetti, Men Are Like Waffles or something like that. Yeah. And I think that it is true that 
that I have been able to compartmentalize. So I could be the father, I could be the Sunday school teacher, I could be the coach, I could be the husband, I could be the contract killer, I could be the drug dealer. I think it was, I was able to take on the role, whatever that role was. And then when I got home and before I got out of the car, would just kind of squeeze out my brain almost like a, like a sponge and drain all that evil out of my my mind and then go walk into the house and give my wife and my kids a hug and and move on with life the rest of the evening and then the next day when the assignment required to me to be whatever it was that assignment called for I could be it so I, I had that ability to take on a role and then leave it at at the office essentially and and go back to being the husband and the father. So I, in some respects, it's like the actor. When the director says cut, print, he moves on and heads home and becomes the family man. And then when it's, he's got his call the next morning, he, he takes on that new role again. So I was, I was able to do it. I mean, it did get to me. I don't want, I don't want your listeners to think that it didn't get to me, but I, I was able to play through it and to pray through it until we were able to wrap up the case. Paint us a picture of how it was infiltrated. So I'll just hand you the mic and you take that away. Okay, the the case didn't initially start with the NAMBLA investigation. What had happened, and I'll back up just a little bit, the FBI is not like television. The supervisor doesn't walk out into the squad bay and say, hey, uh, we need a contract killer today who wants to be that. And the FBI agent raises his hand, and, and now we've got the undercover agent. To get into the FBI program, the undercover program, you have to be certified as an undercover agent. So there's a selection process. You apply. You have to be recommended by different levels of management. Then there's some psychological testing. Not every FBI agent even wants to work undercover. So it's I don't want people to think that I'm part of some elite core. It's just a matter of a lot of FBI agents prefer the traditional investigation and aren't interested in undercover work. I was. I applied. I was selected. They now have a, a two-week screening in service where they try to, it's not SEAL training, it's not Marine Corps Officer Candidate School or boot camp, but there's a lot of pressure and some people that have applied to the program, they get selected for the screening process, can't get through the screening process. Some that do, after they've done one or two undercover assignments, don't want to do anymore. They don't like the pressure, they don't like the hours, they don't like the danger. But there were some of us that that's what we craved and there were a handful of us that just sought out the undercover work. I was I was one of those that spent much of my career in various undercover roles, some lasting for a few days, others lasting for more than three years. So when it came down to this particular investigation, they needed an undercover agent and they contacted me. The way the case began before NAMBLA even came into the picture, the FBI in the Knoxville office had arrested a man Uh, who had child pornography on his computer. When they searched the computer, they found pictures of him having sex with little boys over in Thailand, and he had taken pictures of himself. So the FBI, during their investigation, found out that he had traveled to Thailand through a travel agency that was based in Los Angeles, and that this travel agent was putting together tours for BLs, or boy lovers. They refer to themselves as BLs. And he was putting together these these uh, 
trips to Thailand for BLs. Now I'm getting, I'm approached by the case agent and said, hey, look, we need an undercover agent to go to Thailand. And I'm all excited thinking, hey, yeah, that's good for me. And it's, I knew that this was the, uh, the crew that worked child exploitation. And then they told me, well, what we're targeting are boy lovers. And this is what we want to go after this man that is putting together these trips. Under federal law, it's a violation to travel in interstate or foreign commerce to have sex with someone under 18. So it, it's, it's an interesting federal law because there are some nations that allow you to have sex with people under 18 if it's consensual. The, the terminology is called age of consent. And in essence, it means that even if someone under the age consents, it's still considered statutory rape. So a 50-year-old man who has sex with a 14-year-old girl in the United States, that's called statutory rape, even if the 14-year-old girl agrees to have that. The federal law is 18. So for anyone to travel in interstate commerce or to travel overseas to have sex is now in violation of this federal law. So that's how we began investigating the travel agent. Now I'm doing the preparation. I've got to become this person that would be going on these trips. We kind of thought it was going to be a quick hit. I mean, it would be a matter of me uh, meeting with the travel agent, him setting it up. We get him to make all the right admissions. Probably I get on the plane to fly to Thailand. And once we get to Thailand, we make all the arrests and, and everything is, is all set. But now I've got to prove myself to be a boy lover. And that's when I began doing the research. That's when I got onto the internet. I found out about the boy lover agenda. I found out how they talked. I found out how they acted. And in my research, I came across NAMBLA. I had known of NAMBLA. I'd heard of it for many years, but wasn't all that familiar with the organization. I assumed that most of the men going on this trip were going to be NAMBLA members. Turned out you could join for 35 bucks, so I sent in my $35, and now I'm a NAMBLA member. The case against the travel agency, the travel agent fell apart. Uh, the U.S. attorney said we didn't have enough evidence, even though he had made some valuable admissions. They didn't believe that this was proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So that case just completely fell apart. In the meantime, I'm a member of NAMBLA. I paid my 35 bucks, and I start getting correspondence from the organization. Soon they contacted me. They had a Christmas card program, and NAMBLA members that were in prison they were asking the NAMBLA members that weren't in prison to send Christmas cards to these members. So they would ask you how many cards you wanted to send, and they'd send you the names of NAMBLA members that were in prison. So I got permission from the U.S. Attorney's Office and from my case agent, and I sent out Christmas cards. Now I'm getting correspondence back from these NAMBLA members, and we are looking at these people that are in prison, trying to find out if we can find more about this interstate and foreign commerce, the travel to have sex. So that's, that's how we got to where we got in the NAMBLA investigation. Now, I'll take a breath and let you ask another question if you want. I've kind of dominated <laughs> that. So now you're a, you're a full-blown NAMBLA member, now corresponding with, I'm assuming these are sex offenders in prison. And right. Uh, everybody that, everyone that I 
that I corresponded with had been in prison because they had either possessed child pornography or had been convicted of having sex with a minor. So those are the people that I'm talking to uh, or that, that I'm corresponding with. Now, they also have a magazine called the, the NAMBLA Bulletin. At the time that this was going on, I was actually on the Joint Terrorism Task Force. I was I was working other investigations and kind of took its initial NAMBLA sort of almost a way to, to break away from the terrorism investigations. It was it was almost a break because it was it was something different. It was something much different than what I was doing, and I, I kind of enjoyed writing to these guys. I, I wrote a couple articles for their magazine. I mean, if that, because here I was sitting in Los Angeles working terrorism, and on my off time writing articles for this magazine that I'm submitting to them, and they have no clue as to who I am and and what's going on, and I'm continuing to have correspondence with the NAMBLA members. What's typically contained in some of this correspondence? It varied. Quite honestly, we got some. I sent out the Christmas cards to the names that the NAMBLA organization had given me. Some people contacted, wrote back and said, please, I'm trying to get away from these tendencies. Don't correspond with me again. Others sent me very graphic letters about what they did, why they were imprisoned, why they were convicted, what they hoped to do when they got out. Uh, I had to be careful what I said, but I know that had I gotten more into the weeds they would have some of the some of what they wrote me was just absolutely disgusting uh, and we were able to use this correspondence in some of these cases to keep these guys in prison even longer and I, I I haven't even gotten into the to the NAMBLA undercover my undercover role when I'm when I'm going face to face but I will back up and say that some of this correspondence was so horrible that we were able to contact the, the state authorities. Many states have civil commitment procedures. So if you have committed a sex offense and you have served your time, but it's clear that you haven't been rehabilitated, these states can keep you in beyond the time of the sentence and keep you in under these civil commitment statutes. So we were able to take some of the correspondence these guys sent me sent it to the state authorities and they were able to keep a couple of these guys in even beyond what the what their sentence called for. In the meantime, I had heard that they were going to have their national conference in San Francisco. I contacted uh, the organization and said, hey, I live on the West Coast. I'd really like to go to the NAMBLA San Francisco conference and was told that before you go, you have to be a member for three years and you have to be sponsored by another member. So it was like, oh, nuts. You know, I'm not going to be able to do this. Uh, it's a very secretive, paranoid organization, and they weren't, they weren't going to allow me to go to one of these meetings because I hadn't been a member long enough. So I just kind of forgot about it, continued to correspond with the guys, and continued to work the Joint Terrorism Task Force investigations. Then it came up a year later was their New York conference. And they were celebrating their 25th year, and I ended up getting an invitation. And it kind of shocked me because I'd already been told I hadn't been a member for three years. But they deemed me to be a true believer because I had written for the magazine, because I had corresponded with so many guys. And 
the people, some of the men in prison were telling the organization back in New York that, you know, Bob Wallace is being very helpful and very supportive of our cause. So I was sort of somewhat sponsored by some of the guys in prison. Uh, They believed me because I contributed to the magazine and had been semi-active in the organization. They invited me to go back to New York for what would be my first face-to-face meeting. So what actually I believe I joined the organization probably in August, and then it was not until November a year later that I had my first face-to-face encounter with members of the organization. Obviously, as an FBI agent, you just can't pick up and travel without getting permission. So I had a case agent. She contacted headquarters and said, Bob has this opportunity to to go to, to New York. Headquarters wasn't going to allow us to go. Uh, headquarters said that NAMBLA, and and rightfully so, is actually a First Amendment pr- protected organization. The FBI doesn't target First Amendment protected organizations. We don't go after free speech. They didn't want us to go after, they didn't want us to target the organization per se. Now, we did have information about a couple of the members that we knew to be active members, not in prison. Uh, One was a registered sex offender in California that wasn't living at his registered address. Uh, We also knew that there were some fugitives out there that had warrants for their arrest because of they had sexually molested children. So we were able to, to convince headquarters that it was important for me to go to this meeting to see if we could identify if any of these fugitives were attending the meeting, also to find out about this guy that lived in California that wasn't living at his registered address. But it was made clear to me that we were not targeting the organization. And I think one of the one of the prosecutors in the case probably said it best when he, he said that NAMBLA is like barnyard defecation. We're not going after the pile. We're going after the flies that are swarming around it. Wow. That's, that's sort of the way we got around the First Amendment. We didn't target the organization. We were targeting those flies. The first meeting that I had, and again, Sheila, I haven't gone face-to-face with these guys. I've gone face-to-face with Italian mobsters, with Asian organized crime figures, with drug dealers, with some of the worst of society. But I still was concerned, am I going to be able to sell myself as a pedophile? Am I going to be believable? What? Because once I get face-to-face, if I say the wrong thing, if I do the wrong thing, then it's they're going to know that I, that I don't belong. And it was interesting because they met at Grand Central Station in New York City. We were going to meet at the dining concourse. Again, I had no idea what these people looked like. It wasn't like the FBI had, a, had photographs of every member of NAMBLA because it's a First Amendment protected organization. We had some grainy photographs that I got off the internet, but I really wasn't sure would I would I even be able to recognize them. They, the dining concourse at Grand Central Station, I don't know if your listeners have been there, but you, you kind of enter on the, the street level and then you have to go down a large, uh, a long ramp to get down to the to the dining concourse, and it's down there where the people are rushing to the trains and the subways to to get home at night. And I, I knew there wasn't going to be a big banner flying, you know, Nambla meets here. <laughs> I um, I walk down the ramp, and all of a sudden I look over and I see this group of men, and I my initial reaction was central casting, send me some perverts, because 
they looked like what I thought these NAMBLA members would look like. But then when I got closer, I realized that not all of them fit my my typical image of a NAMBLA member or of a pedophile. And guys started talking to me and they welcomed me into the group. Now what's interesting is that kind of the head of the organization, a guy by the name of Peter Melzer, he actually went by Peter Herman, was his NAMBLA name. He had been a, a school teacher in New York. He rounded us up and said we were going to take a walking tour of Times Square. And we begin walking and as we get closer I can I can feel the excitement I can sense the excitement in the men and all of a sudden we're going into Toys R Us and they have a 60 foot indoor Ferris wheel and these men run to the railing and are looking over the railing at the boys that are on the Ferris wheel and talking to each other about what they want to do to each child uh, sexually due to each child. Sheila, it was at this point that I realized how important this investigation was. Um, had I not been undercover and heard men talking like this, I would have thrown them over the railing. Wow. Uh, I was under the impression that all of the sick, twisted perverts were in prison. But I realized at that moment that they weren't. They were out on the street. And what parents were doing for a fun time with their children completely innocent by taking them on a Friday evening to the Toys R Us in Times Square and letting them have fun, looking at the toys, riding the Ferris wheel, was just presenting to these men an opportunity to, to fulfill at least their lust in, in their mind as they discuss what they want to do with these little boys. This is when it kind of hit me. I mean, I guess this was my epiphany in terms of this investigation that we've got to get this right, and we got to get these people off the street, and we have to we have to make it known that there there really are people out there that that want to do this and want to want to harm our children. You said you had kind of preconceived notions on what a pedophile looks like, not knowing what to expect in these members. That's really the tricky part because there's sort of no atypical profile. We find out these guys run the spectrum from, well, you just mentioned earlier, school teachers, ministers. Did these guys fear getting outed? You know, the possibility of going to jail, what people will think. What's their biggest fear? I think exposure is is probably the biggest fear they have. Um, prison obviously is bad. We kind of, after I started dealing with these men, we kind of joked that you could probably get these guys to plead guilty to a 10-year bank robbery uh, charge rather than charging with child endangerment, child sex abuse, uh, child pornography because of the way that they would be treated in prison. They'd probably rather do the 10 years for bank robbery than five years for that. Wow. But you're right. I mean, the, the exposure for many of these, it was the, the worst thing. We dealt with, look, I thought I understood who the, the perverts were, the guys that hung out at a public restroom in a trench coat and just flashed the people as they walked in. But I'm dealing, in this organization, you can't, put a check off the box, but I'm dealing with Mensa members and illiterates. I'm dealing with guys that, that own their own airplanes and yachts and people that are on welfare. 
it it ran the socioeconomic gamut, but for the most part, most of the people that I dealt with were high functioning individuals in society. They weren't the loner that, that lived in the, the remote cabin in the woods. They were the school teachers. They were the people that were that were interacting with our children on a on a constant basis. Willie Sutton, the bank robber, when they asked him, why do you rob banks? He said, because that's where the money is. Well, if you are sexually attracted to children, where are you going to find your employment or your your social outlets? At places where you can meet children, you, where you can be with them. So I, I dealt with a dentist to high functioning, a psychologist who worked at two Chicago area hospitals. Uh, we, we eventually convicted three special ed teachers. Uh, I had a, one guy that we convicted was a personal trainer. Uh, we had a blue collar worker, but the, the people I corresponded with were airline pilots and welfare recipients. I mean, it just ran the, we, we ran the, the scales there. Let's go back to that New York meeting. Was you know what happens in these meetings? Is there discussions about meeting places? What happens in these meetings? No, the meetings were were very innocuous. In fact, we had a we had a safety meeting, and I I thought when they said we're going to have the Nambla safety talk, I assumed that it was going to be on safe sex practices, but it was on what, how to behave at these meetings and not to discuss where to get pornography. You have to understand the organization by its charter is designed to abolish age of consent laws. That's what they're there to do. So they viewed themselves as an organization, one, as a place for like-minded individuals to come together but not, they were saying, we're not here to discuss how to find boys, how to seduce boys, uh, where to buy pornography. It wasn't anything like that. So they made it clear, you're not going to, we don't want this discussed in the meetings. The meeting in, in New York really wasn't very productive for us as, as the FBI. Now, interestingly enough, I was asked to serve on their steering committee, which is the governing board of NAMBLA. I knew that headquarters would have been up in arms, but had I accepted that position on the steering committee, I, I could have gotten really into the inner circle of the organization, probably gotten to its membership list uh, and whatever. But again, we weren't there to disrupt the organization. We were there to go after the people that were committing crimes. From us, the only positive move out of the NAMBLA organization. Well, I guess you could say two things. One, I didn't get caught. I wasn't exposed as being an undercover agent. And two, I met a guy that lived in Southern California that was an ordained minister, uh, was a chiropractor. And he and I, then once I returned to California, he and I got together a couple times. Eventually, he gave me 125 images of child pornography and eight videos of men having sex with little boys. So wow. we were able to convict that member of child pornography statutes for distributing child pornography. What happened was after that meeting, I kind of went back to some of my other investigative responsibilities, maintained my contact with NAMBLA with the corresponding with members that were out of prison and those that were still in prison and then got invited to the Miami conference a year later. And it was at the Miami conference that we had decided that we were going to be a little more proactive and see, we figured I could, 
I could say some things. I had been told at that first meeting just to sort of sit back and let let them do all the activity, not to ask too many questions because it probably would expose me as being either a reporter or an undercover agent. But now when we get to the, the Miami conference, we were prepared to move forward. The FBI had set up a phony travel agency, and so we were prepared to offer the services of this travel agency. What it turned out, as soon as I arrived at the meeting, I hadn't been there more than 10 minutes, and I meet a new guy that walks in. His name was was David Mayer. He played himself off as being an international flight attendant, said that once he was in, when he was in college, he worked for American Airlines, and then he, after he got out of college, he maintained his employment with American Airlines, and he uses those employment benefits to fly to to Thailand and Mexico to have sex with underage boys. As an undercover agent, I'm sitting there going, this guy has laid out our whole case. Now, he's taken the entrapment off the, the board because he's bringing up travel. He's talking about travel. So it, it worked out great for us. Then this whole time for the, this weekend meeting, he and some of the others are talking about where to go for travel. And I still didn't bring up our travel agency. I just said, let me check because I knew there was a guy back in California that I met that had talked about an opportunity and let me check there. David talked about going to Costa Rica and and a couple other places where we could go. And some of the other members that were at the, the meeting had also talked about travel. So they had sort of taken this whole entrapment legal issue off the board. Once we got back to the West Coast, now we started moving forward. I had suggested to them that I found the information on this travel agency, or that's this travel agency that was putting together a trip down into uh, Mexico. And we began to ask some of the members that I had met whether they wanted to travel to Mexico to engage in sex with little boys. And that's how we ended up eventually convicting seven members then of this group's inner circle with travel with the intent to have sex. What made it difficult was we had to make sure that we covered the elements of the offense. So there'd previously been issues where men had traveled from one state to another state, but their primary purpose of travel was business, but sort of their secondary purpose was to have sex with a child they had met online. So I had to get all of these men to admit that their primary purpose was to have sex and the age of the child they wanted to have sex with and the sex acts that they wanted to to engage in. It was clear that we had the violations that no one could back off and say, oh, no, I just was going on a vacation because it was too cold in Chicago. Well, you know, prison, as I understand it, it's not a good end for pedophiles. Is going to jail and the ramifications that come with prison, like the likelihood of getting killed by inmates, you'd think that would right there be a major deterrent? It used to be. I think that there are less issues now. I mean, in the in the federal system, they have a, an entire prison that's devoted to the incarceration of sex offenders. So now you're sort of around like-minded people. There are not the same issues that, that happened when they were just put in general population at, at a prison. For some, it's it, it can be a horrible experience. It it's just sort of depends on where you go, and you certainly downplay why you're in why you are in prison. So it's not what it used to be. I will say 
I, I know we're starting to run out of time, but this doesn't really have anything to do with the NAMBLA investigation, but, and probably Craig has talked about this in your previous interviews, but there is a, a movement within the psychological community to remove pedophilia as a mental disease and disorder. That's right, yeah. Um, they want to look at this as a lifestyle choice. And these are professionals that are talking about this. This isn't just a bunch of uh, sick sexual deviants that are talking about this. These are professionals that believe that in our current society, it is illegal to have sex with underage individuals. But the desire to have sex with children is not a mental disease or a mental disorder. It's just acting out upon it is illegal. There is a, a strong movement. And you're beginning to see this with the sexualization of children and, and, and some of the other movements that are out there. But I, I think the one thing that, that we saw, most of whom I dealt with were persuasion predators. They weren't the type of men that were going to break into your child's bedroom in the middle of the night and snatch the child from the, from the bed. They were persuasion predators that were persuading the children as much as the parents. The one thing that I found that it, in my NAMBLA experience, and I'm sure there are other examples where this isn't true. I'm not a I'm not an expert on child exploitation. I'm not a psychologist. But in my NAMBLA experience, every child that was successfully targeted came from a home where there was not a loving father figure in the home. Most of them came from single moms. Uh, most of or where the father was. Uh, an alcoholic or an absent father or one that that wasn't there spiritually and emotionally for the child because these children were looking for a father figure and these men tried to provide that and they would groom usually the single mom as much as they would groom the child. Wow, interesting. Well, with all your experience and what you went through and what you saw in terms of behaviors and things to look for, what would you say is important going forward? Because I think it is very important for parents to arm themselves with information. And what would you recommend? How do we protect our children? What are, what are the takeaways from this, Bob? You know, Sheila, I, I don't want to simplify it, but I like the acronym ACT, A-C-T, it's, it's very important that we parents affirm our children, that we make them know that they're important, that they are, that they are loved by us, that they are important by us, that God loves them, uh, that they are important. Because if they find affirmation from us, they're not going to be looking for it from someone else, from that man that is trying to groom them on the playground or in the classroom or on the computer. I think C is communicate. It's important that you communicate with your children, that they know that they can talk to you about anything. One of the favorite tricks that these men use is, look, this is our little secret. Don't tell your mom or your dad, because if they find out, we're both going to get in trouble. So we're just going to keep this little secret between us. So if you have open communication with your children, if they know they can talk to you about anything, that you're not going to lose it, that you're not going to start screaming at them, that you're not going to say that they were horrible for whatever they communicating with someone or, or talking to the stranger, um, then they're going to be able to talk to you. So if you have this open communication, now you're going to know if they are having inappropriate conversations with someone. And then the T comes down to, to 
Ronald Reagan, when he was dealing with the Russians, trust but verify. I am not here to make everybody paranoid about locking their kids up in a box and keeping them there till they're 18 so they don't go out into society. Right. Uh, that's not what this is about. But just be aware, if there's someone that's taking an, uh, an, an interest in your child, if they're saying inappropriate things, then act upon it. Look, one of the things, the other thing about children is trust your child as much as you trust your instincts. There may be a reason why this child doesn't want to sit on Uncle Harry's lap. And it may be because Uncle Harry's got bad breath, but it may just be because Uncle Harry has done something inappropriate. The child doesn't know how to express that and just doesn't want to be to be with him. So don't make him kiss Uncle Harry. Don't make him sit on his lap if he doesn't want to. And, you know, as simple as it sounds, if you don't act, if you don't affirm, communicate, and trust, there's somebody out there that will. Wow. Well, this was such good information. Thank you, Bob, so much for coming on the program today and laying all this out. Folks, the information is up on your screen. Get a copy of this book. Such an incredible story. So many more details. Too many to get into, but I hope everyone gets a copy of this book. Thank you so much again, Bob. God bless you, sir. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And uh, may you continue to do a great ministry with, with your podcast. Folks, again, that was Bob Hamer, former FBI undercover agent. The information is up on your screen. Go get a copy of this book. Well, folks, that's it for today. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you real soon. Good night and God bless you.